Our doctor is in, and so are the doctors of Capital Health. Welcome to the all-new Health 411. Every Sunday morning at 10, Dr. Jonathan Karp, along with our respected panel of guests from Capital Health, take you on an important medical journey to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. To reach your destination, good health. Health 411 is underwritten by Capital Health. Minds advancing medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology. 107.7 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, proudly nominated for our National Association of Broadcasters 2019, 2021, and 2022 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station, as well as the winner of the 2023 IBS College Media Award for universities under 10,000 students. We are broadcasting from the Bronx All Digital Studios on the campus of Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Welcome to Health 411. I am your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by Capital Health. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the science of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and perspective. Today, Daniel Geller, our student producer, hopefully helped expand your knowledge and perspective in a conversation with Dr. Emil Mataris. Uh, Dr. Matter Reese works at Capital Health Medical Center, um, and he is the director of the concussion program um, at Capital Health. Uh, Dr. Matter Reese has a MD, and so Dr. Matter Reese, can you tell us um, how your career path, how you decided to pursue an MD, and how you pursued, uh, how, what made you decide to focus on neuroscience as a specialty? Well, first off, thank you all for having me. I think it's important that uh, the folks that are listening understand that I really did not have any clue, you know, how to pursue uh, a career in medicine when I launched in this uh, this life path of mine. Uh, I'm somebody, you know, who who grew up in Raleigh, New Jersey, and uh, it's a blue collar uh, community where there weren't a lot of professional role models for me. I had wonderful parents that were dedicated, devoted parents, very generous. Uh, we were in a poor area, but yet, despite our limited means, you know, I saw firsthand what it was like to give back to other people that were even in lesser uh, uh, financial situations than we were. And I, I felt that was a way for me to uh, be a good person and and be, you know, a a uh, individual that was proud of, of whatever I decided to go into. I became a Boy Scout when I was very young. I know it sounds corny, but Boy Scouts really believe in doing a good deed every day, trying to do things for others, especially people that were handicapped and, and uh, you know, had, had special needs. And uh, through, through being a scout, uh, I was able to have my first medical exposure as a volunteer at the Woodbridge State School in, in Woodbridge. And there I was a very young teenager, I think it was 12 or 13. And uh, I spent my summer uh, working with profoundly mentally handicapped and physically handicapped uh, individuals, mostly uh, teenagers and young adults at that facility. And I found it incredibly rewarding. It was difficult. It was it was stressful. I was I was uh, experiencing uh, for the first time, what it was like for people who weren't able to express themselves, weren't able to speak, weren't able to do the things that we take for granted every day of our life. 
And I, I found it a very, you know, fulfilling experience and something that I wanted to continue. Uh, unfortunately, I, as I said, I didn't have a lot of role models to help me. You know, my father was a fireman. All the people we knew were all blue collar workers. And it wasn't until my, believe it or not, my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Gordon, my social studies teacher, who I adored. I wanted to be just like her. And when one day after class, she said, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, I want to be a social studies teacher <laughs> just like you. And she says, no, I've looked at your grades. You're great in science. You're great in math. You should be doing something in the science world. You know, look at that. Think about it. And I did. And I followed her lead. And uh, I realized that I really loved the sciences. So the first thing I realized was whatever I do, it's going to have to be in the sciences. I was not somebody that was interested in any of the arts. Uh, I wasn't interested in math or or, or things that were that were not either biological or chemistry based. And uh, I took those classes in high school whenever I had the electives. Um, I also, uh, again, trying to find someone to help, help me. Uh, I spoke one day with my my dentist. You know, he was he was the only medical professional that I I had exposure to. And, you know, he was somebody that recognized our financial situation and he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'd like to go to college, but my parents can't afford to send me. And he said, wait a minute. Uh, you know, your dad's always bragging about how good your grades are. Don't you know there are scholarships, there are grants, there's all sorts of things out there that you can apply for. They even have work programs that you could do while you're in school. You know, talk to your high school counselor and, uh, and, and see what they have to say. And that's what I did. You know, I spoke with the high school counselor, weren't, weren't terribly helpful uh, in, in giving me direction as to where to go or what to study and what options I had, but was able to help me do some applications and, you know, put in, uh, you know, four possible grants and, and scholarships. And with that, I was able to go to college. I went to Rutgers. Again, first thing you have to decide, what field are you going into? Is this the biological sciences? You know, uh, the chem you know, chemical research, or are you somebody who wants to do the arts? I knew I was going to be a science major of some sort, and I knew I loved taking care of, of people that were in need and helping them any way I could. So I, I went to Rutgers, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the typical, you know, uh, Jersey boy. That was our goal to go to Rutgers and uh, was very blessed to to get the financial aid I needed to to go there. And, you know, while I was there. Uh, you know, I looked again for people to give me direction to help me. And I found that many of my my professors were willing to help. You know, don't be afraid to talk to your professors, especially those that you admire, those fields that you enjoy and tell them, you know, I'm thinking about going into some kind of, you know, biological or chemical field. I, I wasn't sure for quite honestly uh, where I was going. I wasn't sure if it was going to be medicine or or some kind of biological research or chemistry i loved i loved both what did you end up majoring and, in at rutgers i i, I was a science major okay. uh, i ended up in, uh, pharmacology was my official okay. my official major i actually switched year three you know i was i was originally doing uh pharmacology research uh which is huge by the way any opportunity that you have uh, during your during your training 
to do research in a field that you think you might like or uh, in some way, you know, work uh, as an assistant in a field that you might like is hugely important because what I found in multiple times that what I thought things were going to be like weren't like that at all. Uh, I really wanted to be this pharmacology, you know, researcher. What are my role models? My professors, you know, was traditional chemistry. And uh, I wanted to follow his lead. I, I took my first summer internship, my summer research program under his uh, his guidance. And I hated it. It was awful. <laughs> I'm in the lab. I mean, I needed the money. I got a grant for it. I needed the money. It was a job. But I realized I don't want to be somebody who's working in a, in a wet a wet lab and, you know, just spend my days, you know, uh, extracting chemicals and and titrating the, you know, the, the solvents and deciding what's working, what's not. So the following summer, I, I was really amazingly uh, uh, thrilled with a neuroscience class that I took. And the professor that was uh, teaching that was doing research at that time on uh, the effect of the catecholamines on cells in our body, especially obese cells. And it was a summer project where I was able to go and work with him and extract these cells after certain chemicals were injected in, in the patients, um, in the patients and the, the subjects. And these were mice and rats and gerbils. And um, I'm kind of a squeamish guy, you know, <laughs> I, I like the idea of helping people, but I don't like blood and guts. So, you know, I needed the money. I wanted to see, you know, what this was like anyway. So, I did that. I took that that summer internship and got paid for that with that grant. Uh, and I, I was thrilled to learn from my professor what he had done and, and the kind of work, the research he had come up with. But my work, in t it required me, again, in the lab to inject these animals, mice, rats, gerbils. Then it was horrible. I then had to amputate their heads, extract their brains, dissect out certain cells in those brains and then analyze them for the effect of these acetyl uh, these uh, catecholamines it was it was gruesome i mean the outcome i realized was very important but i couldn't again deal with that plus i didn't want to work with rats i wanted to do something for people and i really wanted to do something that was more immediately you know rewarding so my my following summer uh, i was working with the neuroscience team doing additional catecholamine studies. And I actually got to see the opportunity of what it's like when you're doing research on a novel medications working with humans. And I realized, well, that's really what I really what I want to do. I want to do something where I can, you know, work directly with patients to take care of them, you know, to develop new drugs that can help them. And that was my goal. Uh, but it wasn't until I did that summer internship that the folks that were doing it with me and seeing how I reacted and the kind of things that I was interested in, they realized that, you know, I'm really more of a people person. Than I'm not somebody that in a lab. Yeah. Well, I, and and uh, Dr. Matarese, I want to hear more about this, but we're going to take a quick break for our underwriting announcements here on Health 411. Um, you're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. <laughs> 
There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and we're having a conversation with Dr. Emil Matarese, the director of Capital Health's concussion program. And Dr. Matarese is telling us a, a little bit about his um, academic path to becoming a neurologist. And he was, at the end of the last segment, he was talking about how some of his summer research experiences, people realized, and I guess he realized too, that he was not a bench scientist. Um, and listening to him talk is very interesting because, you know, taking the brains out of mice and looking for catecholamines is something that we still do here. I still do that in my undergraduate neurobiology labs, Dr. Matteris, and I appreciate that, that not every student loves doing that, um, but we do it from the science side. And you were talking about you were working with catecholamines and your, your, the people you were working with, your mentors, your PI, realized that you were more of a people person and you, you listened to them actually. And that, that, did that point you away from bench science towards medical school? It, it did. Uh, at that point, I realized that I, I, had, I had more of a calling working with humans, working with patients, and trying to help them as opposed to doing, you know, the basic research in developing drug products. And one of the things that I advise now to any student that might be interested in going into neuroscience take whatever opportunity uh, is, is available to you to spend a, a summer uh, break or even during the semester. I did projects also during the semester where I was able to work with the researchers and see firsthand what they were doing. You know, if, if you're somebody who also has time, it's hugely important, I think, to become active in the community because by doing public service, by working with students, I'm sorry, with, with people with special needs, by tutoring, by helping, by reaching out, becoming involved, it helps you to see what it's like to work with other humans, people that are, uh, you know, less fortunate to you, and to see if you can handle it. Not everybody can do it. I mean, I've had students that rotate with me here that think they want to go into med school. And when it gets down to, you know, actually having to work one-on-one -on -one with individuals and, and touching them and being able to physically examine them and come in close proximity and, and you know, things, things are sometimes kind of gross when you're doing a, 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 an exam, especially when somebody's sick, you know, it, it shows you right away, do I want to do this or not? Um, when I was in, when I went to Rutgers, I actually went, when I decided I wanted to go to the medicine, med, go into medicine, uh, I went to the pre-med advisor. They have a pre-med advisor in the counseling department and uh, I showed up. And I said, you know, I want to, I'm interested in going to medical school. Can you help me? And uh, it was a real weird experience. He, he said, uh, he looked at me and I looked around the room and it was all these kind of cute boys that were dressed up nice and pretty wealthy crowd. And I walked in there with my, you know, my worn out jeans and sneakers. And the guy said, they wouldn't want you. I said, what? Interesting. Was, That's an interesting. Wow. Holy, right? Yeah. Holy mackerel. And I've seen this. I've seen it in my career. I've seen people, you know, people, people can be bigoted. You know, people can be biased and patients can be bigoted. Uh, physicians can be bigoted across the world. You know, people can be bigoted. And one of the things you have to remember is that, you know, no matter what you decide you want to do, 
don't let people, especially bigoted, hypocritic individuals, uh, dissuade you from something you really want to do. Uh, it, it just further reinforced my desire to do the right thing. And I was a good student. I had all the, you know, the the accolades that go along with, you know, with with all the all the programs that I had done. And I went on and I I was very fortunate to get into a lot of schools. You know, when it really well, came down well, to let me ask you getting, this, because we deal with students this all the time. You were doing research. You were doing bench research and you realized that was not your thing. You, you know, but did that give you things to talk about in the interview, things to write about? Did those experiences actually end up helping you get into medical school? You know, it really helped me uh, when I did my volunteer work with the mentally handicapped, those individuals with special needs, you know, starting as a young kid. You know, the question, I mean, I have, I mean, I have all the grades and all the awards that, you know, anybody going into this, uh, this field typically has. But what they found most interesting was my out of the box approach to taking care of individuals in our community. You know, the kind of volunteer work I did, the kind of programs that I started, uh, you know, I, I wasn't just a volunteer at the uh, at at the Woodbridge State School, I actually started team programs at the school. You know, when I went there and I saw these young these young men and women, uh, teenagers, they were my age, uh, and they had no outside uh, experience. They weren't able to leave the facility. Many of them didn't have friends or family, and I decided at that point it wasn't enough me just volunteer and be there and help them get in and out of the pool. I decided I was going to expose more of my high school friends to this opportunity. And we started programs where we would actually go and once a month, sounds silly, but once a month we would have a teenage dance. Think about it. What did you want to do in high school? Oh, wow. You wanted to dance. Yeah. You wanted the dates. You wanted to go to the shore. You know, all those things that a normal boy or girl would want to do. And I said, these are normal kids. They just happen to have limitations they happen to have either physical limitations or mental limitations but they still have the same interests the same desires and it 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 was thrilling to see how many of my colleagues you know in in school that the, many of them were also part of you know other programs i started in high school community outreach tutoring things of that sort that said yeah let's get involved and we did this on a monthly basis we'd go in the summer we'd bring them down the shore i mean it was just so cool so rewarding to see these other classmates you know accepting that hey this is a good thing and i i hope that i also was able to influence them in going into the world of 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 healthcare. and some of them i know in fact uh that was in fact the case but uh it, it it's that kind of thing that really you know made a difference and in neurology you know we're 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 still in the infancy of many parts of the nervous system, the brain, you know, we know so much, they have all these fancy tests, but there is so much of the brain we do not understand. And it's, it's hugely important that, you know, if you want to go into this, this world that, you know, you realize that this, this is going to be a lot of intensive studies. You know, many people don't want to do neurology because they look at the brain as this big black box. Something happens in there, it goes in, it goes out, and they don't want to try to figure it out. Most physicians, in fact, but there's this beauty, there's this logic, there's this, this organizational uh, uh, system 
that is predictable, it's reliable, uh, it's, you know, it is easy to, you know, maneuver as a physician. And that's what I used to see when I was meant when I was following my mentors, when they were working with, with patients, where, you know, by listening to somebody, just hearing a good story, 90% of the time, you could make a diagnosis just on the story. And then the exams were so cool, how you could localize uh, a deficit, whether or not a reflex is, uh, you know, increased or decreased, or what specific muscle was weak, you could then relate to what part of the body, you know, was impaired. And it was, it was, it was so neat. And what I found was that people coming in with neurologic conditions had frequently been undiagnosed or misdiagnosed because it was a seemingly complicated, uh, confusing area for so many other physicians. I said, wait a minute, this is something we can do. You know, I can do this. I can make a difference. And if, you know, if your listeners are like that, I love the whole biological sciences. It's only going to get bigger. You know, as we get older, uh, you know, the, 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 the genetic workup that the works that's being studied, you know, the stem cell studies, these biomarkers, you know, we're going to be looking at major breakthroughs and Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease. And I think that, you know, we're going to see more and more of it as, as the population gets older. Yeah. In addition, I find it hugely rewarding when I can make a diagnosis and change a person's life. Yeah, that's a, that's a big deal. I joke about it. you, you want to make, hopefully it's a positive change in their life, um, but it, it is important. So how did you decide to focus on um, patients who had head injuries and concussions? Well, you know, head injuries, but the nervous system is something that I love. Brain, spinal cord, nerves, peripheral nerves, muscle diseases. I love the whole aspect of the nervous system, but I personally found that injuries to the brain, impairment of the brain uh, was closest to my heart. And I, this wasn't a conscious decision, quite honestly. This was something I, I recognized, realized to myself many years later. I grew up in a family where most of the family members, most of my, 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 uh, my, my grandparents, my aunts, uncles, uh, all died of stroke. And so I had this huge, this huge family, you know, family of strokes. I mean, you know, I'd hear the stories, you know, of my grandfather dying and of, of sorry, suffering a stroke and lingering, you know, for years and the family becoming destitute and thrown out of their house you know, because of it. Uh, my grandmother not only had stroke, but she had seizures. And there was a, a development. There was a, a breakthrough in stroke treatment, uh, a, a medication called TPA that was that was developed. And that's one of the clot busting drugs, right? It's a clot-busting drug. That's right. I mean, as a young doc, uh, you know, first going into the world and seeing patients and rotating. Back then, we were allowed to actually spend time in the hospital following doctors. I did that, too, just to see what they do and what's it like and do I want to do this and what specific area do I want to go into. And a lot of the neurology fields, a lot of the neurology patients were really sad. They'd, be, they'd have MS. And young, healthy people would be crippled. There was nothing to do for them at the time. Somebody would come in with a stroke. They'd be paralyzed, unable to speak. There'd be nothing they can do at that time. Well, the world has changed. We now have medications that can actually alter 
a person's life that so, can prevent some of Dr. Matteris, please hold that thought. I want to hear about these medications that are going to alter people's lives. But I'm going to take a quick pause for our underwriting announcements. This is 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. And you're listening to Health 411. And we'll be right back. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. Welcome back to Health 411. Uh, Dr. Emil Marteris, the director of Capital Health Concussion Program, is talking about his path to um, medical school and his focus on neurology. At the end of the last segment, we were talking about some of the things that he had done on his journey. And one of the things he did was shadow some physicians in hospitals. And he was doing this around the time that the clot busting drugs like TPA were, were being administered to patients. Um, and these are drugs that are given to patients soon after a stroke. And when I, uh, and I apologize for cutting you off, you were saying you were able to see patients come back from deficits and sort of begin to heal in the hospital when they were administering these drugs and it really motivated you to learn more and pursue your studies. It, Jonathan, is so true. Uh, the Start with stroke. When somebody had a stroke, it was in many cases, a large stroke was a death sentence. Once they had it, all we could do was you know, try to support the family, to keep the patient comfortable, do whatever we could do to, to let them function in a way that maybe they can go back home and, and live out their days. But in 1995, that all changed. The, this clot-busting medicine first came out, that uh, was finally approved by the FDA, where if you could administer this intravenously uh, to somebody having a stroke in the first few hours, you could potentially dissolve that clot and it was like modern day miracle. Somebody would come into the emergency room totally paralyzed, blind, unable to speak. You'd give them the TPA. And sometimes within hours of administering it, they would they would just wake up. They'd be able to talk. They'd be able to, to look around. They could see. They could move. It was phenomenal, something which, which, which would otherwise have been absolutely impossible. So what I realized at that time in my life was that we need to increase awareness to everybody that this is happening. And before I became the director of the concussion program, I was a stroke director and I was, I was the stroke director for 28 years and, and, you know, moved on to a national level with the heart, heart and stroke association promoting this awareness program that I do. But it was because so many people were not aware that this, this medicine was available and, so many doctors weren't aware, and so many of the hospitals weren't using it. You know, when I first started, 4% of the hospitals were using TPA. It was, it was just ridiculous. Wow. So I started a local campaign and then linked forces with the Stroke Association to make it a national campaign of actually a grassroots approach. Wow. So, so was there actually resistance in the neurology community to using TPA? Was it, was it that big of a, 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 like a challenge to what people were sort of standard operating procedures at the time? There was. Wow. Because TPA, TPA it basically uh, wiped out your clotting factors uh -huh. so that if you bled, there was nothing to reverse it. So you were you were putting yourself legally at risk if somebody received it and they had a bleed in their brain and they died, uh, you know you, you were li you were uh, liable for it. So a lot of the a lot of the doctors, the ER doctors and neurologists, 
the neurologists did not want to use it. They, it, it wasn't, uh, they didn't think it was adequately proven, but the benefit, the potential benefit of turning around the life of somebody who otherwise would have been paralyzed in a nursing home, I felt far outweighed, you know, any potential risk. And you would tell the family and the patient what the risks are, and they would have to accept it. You wouldn't do it without their permission, without their understanding, without their consent. And, and, and to put this in the to, context, TPA what, is still being used, right? Now, you know, 30, 30 years late, right? Isn't it? We're still using yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, wow. And again, it's something that has to be administered in the first few hours for it to be effective. But there's so many other things that have come out since that time to try to prevent brain injury. And an extension of my desire to prevent brain injury from stroke was my desire to prevent brain injury from head trauma. I've been, till, I've been you know, dealing with, with uh, individuals with concussions for the past 40 years. But one thing that we're seeing, there's, a, there's an evolution that I have seen over the last 10 to 15 years, even before the NFL was sued because of players going on and developing the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that dementia that was uh, that was seen in multiple head trauma patients. Uh, what I found was that I was seeing individuals with concussions uh, and multiple concussions getting more serious injuries earlier in life. You know, most most people think of concussion as being this pretty much benign, innocuous thing that can happen. No, you hit your head. You may feel a little funny. It'll be gone in a, you know, in a day. No big deal. Or, you know, I remember as, as a basketball player, you know, running across the court. I was this big, gawky kid, what not very good. And somebody from the other team would, you know, just knock me down. It was easy to get rid of me. And I've had concussions. And I remember, you know, waking up on the ground, looking up and somebody yelling at me, get up, run. You know, and I'd get up and I'd run. I wouldn't know where I was running. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I did what they told me to do. But what we realize now is that we're seeing more serious injuries as a result of concussions earlier in life. Uh, it's now become apparent that although in the past we used to think children's brains were plastic and whatever injury happened, they were going to recover from it. Well, we're not seeing that, you know, anymore. We're also seeing the kind of injuries younger people are getting is more serious. When I was in school, and probably John, you as well, um, you know, if you played sports, you played for three months. Basketball, mm -hmm. I, I try out. I, you know, you practice, you play games. The season's over three months. Then you go back to either doing a job or you play another sport, or you didn't Correct. do anything to the following. And now, that, that model has changed, hasn't it? <laughs> Oh, now, athlete children, you know, not at just high school, we're talking middle school, elementary school. These kids are training all year round. They have private trainers. They have, uh, you know, specialty camps that they go to. They're, they're weightlifting all year long. So you have, you have young athletes who are stronger, better, better skilled, hitting harder uh, than we ever saw. So the kind of injuries that we're seeing in middle school, that kind of impact didn't happen until they were in high school in the past. We're seeing elementary school kids taking the kind of hits that wouldn't happen until middle school. I mean, it wasn't until, I guess, four years ago that I started getting calls from elementary schools to go and do lectures for the teachers on how do I treat these kids that look like deer in headlight after they had a concussion? What do we do for them? How do we adapt their, their program? How do we accommodate them? I mean, I'm dealing it with high school and college 
for you know for for years but you know it, it it was initially confusing to see it in the middle school and then elementary schools and that's the reason these kids are just you know they're getting hit harder than they would at their age and the younger brains are very susceptible there's there's something called second impact syndrome second mm -hmm. impact syndrome when you have a concussion you know the brain is is jarred inside the brain inside the head you know you don't even need to get hit in the head all you need to do is have some kind of of uh impact to the body an indirect force like a whiplash injury the head doesn't have to hit anything but Correct. the brain is bouncing inside that skull so right riding that, a, you, one can get a concussion from riding a roller coaster absolutely yeah. absolutely um you know anything that's going to suddenly jar the head where the head shifts or, or rotates quickly can cause the brain inside to shift the base of the brain the brainstem to twist to torque uh and the areas of the brain that make surface with the inside cavity of the skull become microscopically swollen. If you take a picture of it with a casket MRI, you won't see it, but we know it's there. And functionally, it's there. The second impact syndrome is a condition that can happen in immature brains that have not fully, fully developed, where if they get a second hit before the, impulse, before the injury of the first uh, concussion is fully resolved, that second hit can set up a sequence of events that can suddenly cause dramatic increased intracranial pressure within minutes, within minutes. And a young person can either be left with permanent brain damage or they can die. It's because of this second impact syndrome that we have these laws, both here in the, in the States as well as internationally, where if an athlete has a concussion, they can't go right back into the field. You know, they have to be pulled out for 24 hours. They need to be symptom free. They need to be cleared by by a, an individual who knows how to evaluate uh, a concussion. And we understand that if they are not fully healed by taking that second impact, uh, they could be risking their lives. And this isn't just something theoretical. This is something I see in my practice. I have at least a half a dozen students that are high school and college age that have been out of school for one to three years because they did this, they had this injury happen to them. And, you know, what's even sad, most sad, I think, is that many of these were the scholar athletes, the the self-motivated, hardworking, they got to be the best at everything, best in school, best, you know, in sports. And uh, these are the individuals that even though they took a hit, you know, during a tournament or, you mm -hmm. know, during playoffs, uh, they were, weren't going to hide it because they, they were going to hide it because they weren't going to report it and be pulled and not let their team win. We've got to change that. And I, when I realized this shift in what was happening to these kids and the lack of knowledge that so many student athletes, their parents, their trainers, their coaches, their administration, there was such a lack of awareness of this. I felt this is now my next mission. Wow. I mean, we've done great in improving, you know, stroke awareness across the country, but I still think there's this, this gross uh you know deficiency yeah there's a big in knowing is not as benign as you think and don't yeah. hide it well i it, it, it's interesting because um i'm i am of a comparable age of you and i remember even to myself of getting or seeing it people getting what we call now call concussions and it was basically get back up what are you a wimp get back in there 
And exactly. I, I'm, I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you, because if you're, if you're of a big, I can see a big part of your mission is education. And I want to see how your educational efforts are sort of met by people of our age, of how they're dealing with that. Um, but we're going to do that after we take a break on Health 411 for some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronc and 1077thebronc.com. We're recording Health 411 from the Digital Bronx Studios. We are con- con- continuing our conversation with the Director of Capital Health Concussion Program, Dr. Emil Matteris, MD, and he's talking about some of the things that have changed in history, of how, um, even in short history of our lifetime of how people deal with head injuries and concussions and things like that. And he was talking about a time, I know this is my own life and I've seen it, in other people where people have what we now identify as a concussion and they're pushed to be back out in there. How many fingers am I holding up? You can count them so you go back out. Um, And I'm wondering in your educational efforts when you talk to parents and now grandparents and you talk about the changes and the awareness of of, of brain health and um, the idea that, you know, concussions can last more. You don't have to be knocked out to have a concussion. How do people sort of uh, how do people respond sort of this change in what they were exposed to all growing up? Are people willing to change their behavior or is it a battle along the way? It's, it's very much a battle. Uh, I still find so many athletes, their parents, uh, and many times the, the school itself pushing these kids, you know, to continue to play uh, to, to, the, to the student athlete's defense. So many times they're pressured because in, in many cases, it's the only way they're going to get to college. Well, let, if they can't, and I, I mean, I'm, they, I'm going to ask you that but, too, because you talked about how important it was for you for looking for scholarship opportunities and doing all that. Growing up, you know, in this area, I know a lot of pe- about a parents who think the only way my kids are going to go to college is if they get athletic scholarships, and that puts a lot of pressure because so much of college is your brain. Is that is that what you're battling? It's true. It's financial. Uh, they don't want their kids to come out with a huge debt after they're done with college. They don't want to have to foot that bill. If they can get a full full ride with an athletic scholarship, they want to do that. Uh, unfortunately, it is it is very short-minded. If your child, even if they're a fantastic athlete, if they get a second hit, you could be left with permanent brain damage. And I have so many students in my practice. One of the things that I think is, you know, there's, a, there's an old expression, knowledge is power. If you can reach as many people as possible, which is what we're doing right now, you know, with this and any other program I do to educate, you know, we want to talk about this particular risk and how important it is to know that if you really have symptoms after you take a blow sufficient enough to cause a concussion, whether or not it was hit to the head doesn't matter. Only 30 percent of concussions have hits to the head. You want to get checked out. You want to pull yourself off the field, keep yourself safe until you can see a doc or a healthcare provider to see if it's a concussion. What I find myself having to do is I've, I've initially for the first many years just went around school to school trying to do uh, these presentations to the student athletes and to their, their, and to their uh, trainers and coaches. I then found that doing for the teachers and the nurses was hugely important because so many times these, these injuries don't even occur on the sports field. You know, many of them are, are 
when they're they're fooling around at home, fighting with their their siblings, playing you know pickup games, and it was important for everybody to understand that. I've gone to every you know every time I get an opportunity to go speak at a, a civic organization, any kind of you know uh, 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 civic groups, uh, you know adult uh, senior seniors because so many many seniors have ch- grandchildren. Anytime I get a chance to talk, I will do it. I also have found that you know trying to take this information and share it with other people, even if just everyone on this 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 uh, podcast recognizes this and tells two people and asks them to tell two people. That's that grassroots approach of, of, of spreading it. You know, I've tried to look in different ways because a lot of people don't want to hear this. And I've tried to look in other ways, trying to come up with articles or, or, or news catching, you know, options that will, that will educate people. And, you know, unfortunately you sometimes have to be really creative. Yeah. I'm doing a program. I, I, one of the things that I've done with capital and, you know, it, it's very successful. We do these programs for communities, uh, mostly communities at need, mostly those that are that are underserved, uh, the least, ac- least access to health care. And we go into those communities to try to connect them with with the health care and to educate them. We're, we're doing one in Burlington on June 24th. And uh, this is a, anyway, a citywide health uh, fair. And anyone that's interested in attending certainly can can reach out to our uh or if you go online you, you, in, and look up capitalhealth.com, I'm sorry, capitalhealth.org, you know, they'll be able to uh, get information on this. But it's it's a way for us to educate the community, attract a large number of people in the community and educate them on traumatic brain injury, concussion, risks, what to do if you have it, uh, stroke awareness, cardiac awareness. And uh, we have we have educational material. I did a video uh, this this past year with uh, with Capital Health, where it talks about concussion, it talks about the risk of second impact syndrome. Uh, this is something that we can easily, you know, distribute. Anybody that goes on our website, you know, it's on there, and you know, it's something that we we did intentionally that anybody that wants to use it, anyone that wants to show it to educate any any community group. These these travel teams find to be the most difficult to be willing yes. to accept, you know, education on, on concussion because they don't want to lose the business. They don't want to frighten away their their parents who are spending a lot of money to have these kids in these specialty travel teams. Yes, uh, I, and- I, I have lived that. Well, I, I, I'm going to ask, what, coming when, speaking about concussions, um, and, and you also meant we were talking about stroke. One of the breakthroughs in the treatment of stro- stroke was this family of drugs, the clot-busting drugs like TPA. Does a similar kind of drug to fix a concussion exist, or is time is time the medicine for concussions? It's under it's under research. Uh, there is no drug right now that's been officially uh, approved, but there's a lot of studies on concussion, uh, in, and especially biomarkers. You know, we're finding abnormal proteins, inflammatory markers, uh, things that we can use a blood test to see hey, this person had a concussion. And it also looks like it has a prognostic uh, effect on on the patient's care, where we'll be able to have some ideas to how long it's going to take for them to heal, because this this has real value. It's going to let us know when we can safely allow either an amateur or a professional athlete to get back to sport. 
also other people, people in the police department, people in military that also are at risk for being injured, having traumatic brain injuries. When can we safely let them return, you know, to, to you know, actually back to harm's way, you know, uh, before we can let them do that? These are these real reasons why we need to do this. And there's also biological studies, you know, using special MRI uh, imaging, seeing individuals that may have more serious consequences of repetitive head trauma than we suspect. So there's a lot of research going on in that regard right now. Yes, there's medications that are being tested, nothing that's been approved yet for concussion. Right now, the most important thing is, you know, to allow yourself to fully heal, to see a doc or nurse practitioner, healthcare provider that is experienced in evaluating concussion, knowing to how to examine the person to be sure their symptom that, that, that their exam is normal after their symptoms are normal, encouraging them to return to play in a, in a five-step return to play process. All of this is on, you can get this all on our video, on our uh, website. You know, the video talks about it as well, where we are not letting somebody back into harm's way until they are, they are truly able to do it safely without long-term consequences. So where do you see the future of concussion treatment going then? I, I think concussion treatment is number one. The biological markers are going to be, you know, an objective way for us to assess. Even even on, on the side in the field line, you know, on the sideline, we're going to be able to see where, you know, where is this person who has to go to the emergency room. Uh, and I think by doing video conferencing, even in the field, you know, I think it's going to be huge. I mean, we we all have. Uh, smartphones. We all have ways to to look at that. Just like we're doing uh, uh, telemedicine, you know, for our patients, we should be able to do this in the field, you know, as well. Uh, our athletic trainers are incredibly uh, motivated individuals that want to protect the the brains and the bodies of our of our our youth, and they're certainly one of the most uh, amazing partners that I have to work with, you know, to get this to get this out. Uh, there's going to be new studies, radiologic studies, MRI, that are going to see if there's changes in the brain, fluid shifts that we cannot see on a conventional MRI now, but but new studies are showing these these changes. So I think we're going to see new blood, blood studies. We're going to see new radiologic studies that are going to help us make the diagnosis and, you know, prognosticate the diagnosis, their, the duration of their symptoms and help us to get people better faster. I, I can I can I can anticipate your answer to my next question is if somebody does have a, a c concussion, um, what is the what's the bar for allowing them back into participation? Is it, you know, 95 percent of where they were for 80 percent, 70 percent, 100 percent, 100 percent? What what should it look like? You should not be allowed back onto the field. You should not let yourself be put back on the field. Until you have fully recovered all symptoms from a concussion, you should have, again, a, a, a medical caregiver who knows how to evaluate a concussion to examine you. Because some of the things that I see are mislabeled as concussion. Just because somebody hits their head or falls and has what looks like a whiplash injury and could have put them at risk for a concussion, many times there is, there is collateral damage. You know, it's not just the brain that gets shifted. You know, it's the attachments from the brain to the special organs. It's the spinal cord. It's the nerves exiting the spinal cord going into the, you know, the, the into the limbs. Uh, 
it's the jaw, it's the inner ear. There's many different, the orbit, there's many different parts of the body that can be impacted in these situations. And I've had patients where they've come to me for, you know, fourth, fifth, you know, opinions where they've had intractable headaches, they've had intractable uh, dizziness, they can't read, their eyes are bouncing, they're always nauseous. And it ends up that it's not the brain, it's an injury to the ear, it's an injury to the to the, the nerves exiting the spinal cord. Uh, so you, you need somebody to do an exam. You then also need somebody to be that, that student's uh, advocate because we don't want kids missing school either. You know, we want them to be able to get back to school. That's their job to learn, but we don't want them to suffer. We don't want them to have headaches and be dizzy and be in pain from the light and not be able to understand. So we want to be their advocates working with their the, the nursing department, with the administration, with the, yes. with the medical, the uh, faculty there to allow these kids back, to give them the kind of special uh, support that they need. And that's something else that most uh, families don't know is available to them. And unless you see somebody to help you, a medical a person uh, who can actually request those, you know, they're, they're going to be uh, trying to run up a hill. So, that's yeah. that's going to be a lot more steep than than they otherwise would have to have been. Dr. Matteris, I am going to unfortunately I'm going to have to uh, cut you off a little bit because we're running out of time on our program today. Um, I would love to have you back to go into some more detail of all these things and g gain some more appreciation of your experience in treating heads with people with concussions, especially young people, because I know even in my own family, that was a battle, uh, trying to get people to take the time and do things necessary. Um, but unfortunately, that's going to have to wait for a, another program. I want to thank Dr. Emil Matter-Reese, the Director of Capital Health Concussion Program. Thank you so much for joining us. This is 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. We're recording Health 411 um, from the Bronx studios. This program is part of Capital Health and Rider University's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health and health care. We hope today's conversation with Dr. Matarese has given you something to think about, about his path to study neurology, as well as his experience treating stroke and uh, the patients with concussions. If you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Remember, you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for every Sunday at 10 a.m. Don't miss the all-new Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp and our expert medical guest from Capital Health. You can listen to Health 411 anytime on demand. Go to 1077thebronc.com slash health411 to listen to past episodes or tune in every Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear the weekend rewind edition of Health 411 Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx is underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology.